Lord, good to be here, just to, just to calm our hearts and minds, focus on you. And Lord, help us to do that, to focus on you. Lots of activity here in the next, uh, boy, Lord, the next couple months out here at church. Help us never get so caught up in the activity we lose the focus on you. Lord, let it always be about you and always say and do. Help us to learn, grow, go deeper tonight and to really walk out of this room with a deeper walk with you in your name. Amen. All right, last week we kind of talked about the overview. We'll hit the overview real quick here of Mark chapter 8 and move on. As I mentioned last week, if time would allow, it'd be great to do Mark 8 and get right into Mark 9 because all these subjects just flow together. We have to break it up because of time. But just to show you how this would work, verses 11 and 12, the world wants a sign. And Jesus says, you want a sign? The sign is, I will die and rise again. That's the greatest sign I can give you. More than feeding 5,000, 4,000, rising the dead, casting out demons, walking on water. I will defeat death. What happens then is, as we want a sign, we have to take heed and beware because there's all this false teaching out there trying to pull us away from the truth, verses 13 through 21. And we talked last week about that idea of seeking a sign and then the false truths there that come out in this world that we need to know the real truth from the false. Why is it so difficult with this idea of truth and false teaching? Because 22 through 26, we're blind. And we need to have our eyes open. And once our eyes are open, 27 through 30, we need to choose to confess Christ. We need to choose to say, this is who I want to follow, is Jesus Christ. And once I understand that, verses 31 through 33, the only thing that matters is he died and rose again. And then 34 through 38, I will then say, I, Lord, I want to die to myself and follow you. I'll take up my cross. And then chapter 9, verses 1 through 13, I will then finally understand and see the glory of the Lord. That's the logical pattern. Now, the problem is we have to break this up. So tonight we're going to talk about 22 through probably 33, and we're going to talk about the idea of being blind and confessing Christ. We have to remember how this all goes together, that there, we're battling blindness. Why? Because 13 through 21, the false teaching that's out there. 11 through 12, sometimes we seek a sign rather than we really want to know Jesus Christ, want to have a relationship with him. So just a quick reminder of the overview of that as we get ready to get into this. Now, I've shared with this many times before. Whatever I teach out here, I have to live. I have to live the week before, the week after. It's just something that I've realized in the 20-plus years I've been teaching. And a lot of times I see it, and I see it coming. One happened to me last week that I did not see coming that dealt exactly with what we're talking about. Verses 13 through 21, false teaching. I mentioned to you last week about the importance of knowing your Bible and studying your Bible. Study to show yourself an approved workman, rightly dividing the word of truth, 2 Timothy 2.15. The Holy Spirit will bring to remembrance all the things that Jesus said, John 14.26. We talked about those verses. And being prepared in season and out of season, I told you, I set aside one meal a week where I fast over conversations that are going to happen that I don't even know that are going to happen to be prepared and to be ready. I, I fast and pray because I'm going to run into to, uh, spiritual battles and demonic forces that I don't even know about. I need to be ready and prepared. I know all this stuff. I taught all this stuff on Wednesday. So now, Thursday. It was a good day, good day of ministry. Had a chance to witness to a lot of people. Just had a good day of ministry, good Bible study Thursday morning. It was just a good day. Had to go to BG to take care of something, and the Lord opened a lot of doors there just to get a chance to share, and my uh, third child with me was Kenan. We're getting ready to finish up and get ready to head home, and we walk into Walmart. Dawn had a list of stuff to get, 
And as I get ready to walk into Walmart, there's a guy that uh, says something to me. Now, I had on my Harvest red shirt. First time I've worn my Harvest red shirt probably literally in years. I normally don't like wearing the Harvest shirts. It's not because I don't like this church. I love this church. But anytime I get a chance to talk to somebody and they usually say, oh, what church do you go to? Always seems a little self-something to say, hey, here it is. (laughs) I'm the pastor. Listen to me. You know, that's what it sounds like. So for some reason, I've always hesitated wearing those shirts. I don't know why, but I had it on. God's sovereignty, I had it on. As I'm walking into Walmart, there's a guy that says, hey, looks like somebody walked on your back. You know, the Harvest shirts, we have the footprints of Jesus. It's supposedly on the back, right? I kind of forgot that. So I said, oh, he goes, yeah, it looks like someone walked on your back. And I realized, oh, that's right, I got the Harvest shirt on. So I went over to him, he's sitting there. And you can tell immediately... He's an interesting type of man. You can just tell. And so I said, yeah. And I thought, Lord, this is, you just opened a door here. And I said, yeah. And, you know, I talked about the verse on the back, and I said, the feet of Jesus. And I thought, Lord, you're just really opening up a door here. I mean, this guy noticed it, get a chance to talk about it. Now, here's the whole thing, guys. This is why you pray. This is why you study the word. This is why you're prepared in season and out season. This is why you fast. This is why you seek the Lord, because you never know what's going to happen. So, true story, I said, yeah, I talked about Jesus. You know, talked about the verse and stuff, trying to open the door. He looks at me and goes, yeah, he never existed. I said, who never existed? He goes, Jesus, he never existed. I said, Jesus, Jesus existed. And I, right there, you start praying, which route are we going to go? Do we go the route of the verses? Do we go the route of history? And I started talking about the Bible and about Jesus, because I think you should always give him God's word. Cuts me off, says, Bible, yeah, Bible's not true. Nothing in the Bible is true. Not even a real book, whatever. He's kind of rambling on. So I then said, fine, I'll switch weapons here real quick because I know how this works. And I said, well, you know, even secular history talks about Jesus existing. If you've ever studied out Josephus, and boom, shot down. He goes, he goes, bait and switch. He goes, Alexandrian library. If you remember history, there was this huge Greek library at Alexandria. He goes, what happened was the Christians came in, they attacked the library, and they took out all the books of true history, and they replaced them with Bibles and the history of Jesus, etc., and all this other type of stuff. Okay, this is a new one, Lord. So I'm like, okay, how are we going to go from this? I said, so you're saying the Christians came in, you're saying the Christians switched everything. Now, this is what I've learned in talking to people. No one has ever been demated into the kingdom of heaven. No one ever has. You know why you debate? You debate because it feels good. And it feels good to win. I had to catch myself at that moment and realize I don't really give a hoot about the Alexandrian Library in Greece. I care about this man's soul. So back to Jesus, back to the Bible, whatever. He goes, yeah, I've been to the Alexandrian Library, and he's talking about being at the Alexandrian Library, which I didn't know how he could have been at the Alexandrian Library unless he was talking about the ruins. And I, So he keeps talking about it, bait and switch. Christians came, attacked, took out all this stuff. And I said, okay. I, so I finally said, I'm going to bite. I said, you were at the Alexandrian Library. He goes, yeah, I was at the Alexandrian Library. And he talks about wearing a breastplate. And then he talks about a sword going through him. And I'm thinking we're talking symbolically. No, he was at the Alexandrian Library when it was attacked by the Christians, and he died there. I said, you were at the Alexandrian Library? Yes. I, and he goes, I died there. I said, you died there. I said, you're not dead. You're right here. He goes, no, no, no. He goes, I'm the creator. BG Library. I mean, excuse me, BG Walmart. I'm the creator. You're the creator. He goes, well, I'm one of the creators. I said, well, what's your name? I don't have a name. We just have always existed. And I said, you've always existed, always existed. I said, well, you know what? The Bible says your body is a tent, and I can tell your tent's falling apart. What are you going to do then? 
He goes, I get a new tent. That's what he said. I said, what's your name? Don't have a name. You don't have a name. I said, so what do people call you? They don't call me anything. Now, at this point, I want to win the debate. I forgot. I said, Jesus, take a back burner for a second here. <laughs> because you have a name. You purchase stuff at Walmart. If you paid cash, that means you cashed some type of check that you had to sign. If you paid credit card, you signed your name. If you wrote a check, you signed your name. You have a name, and if I call the cops on you, they're going to ask for your ID, and I bet you're going to show it. <laughs> but at that point, I had to let it go. He's a creator. He created the world. I said, you created the world. I said, and he goes, yeah. And I said, no, you didn't. He goes, you weren't there. And I said, you weren't there either. <laughs> and he goes, I'm, we're coming back. We're coming back to judge the world. And we're going to terraform the earth. We're going to rechange the earth and all this other type of stuff. Now, you may be thinking at this point, you walk away. No. This man needs Jesus. And I have come to the conclusion that if he's not going to be open to Jesus, as I mentioned to you last week, it is my job to present the truth. If they choose not to accept it, then I walk away. When they say they're done, I'm done. I don't force it. I said, you are right. I said, God is coming back. I said, but there's not gods. There's one God. He's coming back. He said, not true. I said, it is true. He's coming back. Book of Revelation. I said, that's one thing I will agree with you on, is that God is coming back to judge the earth, because of, and he keeps interrupting, and he keeps stopping. And he goes, not true. And he just kept saying, false, not true, false, not true. I finally said, you know what? I said, um, if I gave you some, a, a track, would you read it? No. I thought, at least I'm going to pray with this guy. I said, can I shake your hand? He goes, no. And he started rambling on false. It's all myth. It's all a lie. I said, you know what? I'm just going to say this. The Bible is true. Jesus did exist. Jesus is true. And he's coming back. And he's coming back to judge the world of its sin. He's coming back to judge them in righteousness. He goes, lie, false, myth. At that point, I said, have a good day. He goes, no. <laughs> I went and bought a watermelon then. <laughs> Be prepared in season and out of season. Know your Bible. Rightly defend the word of truth. Know when to stop, know when to start. Let the Holy Spirit lead. Can't stress you enough. Get prayed up, get fast up, because you never know when you're going to run into a demon-possessed man at Walmart. This is the true world that we live in. This is the reality. And so when, when I'm teaching you, hey, last week, you've got to know. I'm telling you, you never know when it's going to happen. And you've got to get prepared and you've got to get ready. And this is the world that we live in. So just wanted to tell you about that and share that story. Now, Moving on, because we're talking about blindness, if you remember correctly, we are blind, continuing our overview here. We're blind. Verse 22, then he came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town, and when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. Then he put his hand on his eyes again and made him look up, and he was restored and saw everything clearly. Then he went, sent him, excuse me, then he sent him away to his house saying, neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town. Okay, I, I want to just, I want to remind, I know you guys know this, but, but you forget this, I forget this, in the midst of a theological discussion, be it in person, be it online, be it over the phone, be it texting. I don't, we forget in the middle of this that when you're talking to a non-believer, they are completely, utterly blind. They're not seeing what you see and hearing what you hear. I heard a teaching one time that said, trying to explain the things of God to a non-believer is like trying to explain colors to a blind person. You can explain it, you, but they're just not going to get it. If they've been blind from birth, they don't understand the different concepts here. You know, Paul wrote in Corinthians, the natural man cannot receive the things of God. 
Only the spiritual man can. For you that have gotten saved later in life, you maybe can remember before you got saved the spiritual conversations you had with people. And you can remember back and say, oh yeah, I can remember hearing them and hearing them, but not really hearing them. So as you're talking to someone who's not right with the Lord, you can make perfect sense. You can lay it out clearly. You can use the right verses, the right scriptures, etc. But until their eyes are opened in Christ, they're blind. And they're blind in a couple different ways. Ephesians 4.18, if you're a note taker, you can write it down, Ephesians 4.18. They're blind in their heart. Blindness of heart. That's why people's heart that's not right with the Lord and is blind, they're just out there living their life full of whatever passion they want to live their life for. Women, go after the women. Alcohol, go after the alcohol. Drugs, go after the drugs. Money, go after the money. Pride, go after the pride. Attention, go after the attention. Their heart is so blinded, they're not thinking about anything of eternity. So when you look at them and you're talking to them and you're saying, do you not see the destructive path that you are on? Nope. Why? They're blinded. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, says you can also be blinded in your mind. Have you ever talked to someone, maybe pro-life, pro-choice, and you're thinking, how can you actually believe those views? How can you believe those views about that? How can you believe your views about marriage? How can you believe your views? And I'm not even talking politics. I I don't even get into politics. My big thing is this, is I want to see souls get saved because once people get right with Jesus Christ, guess what? They're going to choose to vote and act differently because they're right with Christ. They are blinded. And I know people that spend so much time and energy trying to talk to the blind to to change their moral outlook where their moral outlook is not going to change because their heart is blind and their mind is blind. Does that mean you don't stand for truth? That the Lord leads you to stand for truth. But always remember, you're here to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul wrote in Corinthians, I am here to preach Christ and Christ crucified and Him alone. It's not our job to make the world more moral. Our job is to make the world saved in Christ. And until they're saved, their heart is blind and their mind is blind. Just like this man here was blind. And one time, you were that way as well. Go with me now, please, to Acts 26. Acts 26. Paul quotes Jesus here, and this is a verse I've used a lot. If I have somebody who is not saved... I'd love to take this verse and put their name in it. Look at Acts 26. Take a look here at verse 18. To open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Open their eyes to turn them from darkness to light, the power of Satan to God. We don't like to think of it that way, do we? I always use my hypothetical guy, Fred. You like Fred. Fred's a good neighbor. Fred's a good co-worker. Fred's your brother. Fred's your sister. Fred's your friend. Fred's whatever. You like Fred. You don't like to think of Fred walking in darkness and in the power of Satan. But if Fred is not born again and saved, guess what? He is walking in darkness, his eyes are blinded, and he is walking in the power of Satan. That's the reality of it. And until Fred's eyes are opened in the Lord, his mind is blind, his heart is blind, and he's walking in unforgiveness, and he's heading straight towards hell. So you can talk to Fred all you want about moral issues, but Fred's heart needs to be changed in Christ. 
And when Fred's heart's changed in Christ, that's when everything else changes. And I just want to ask you this, and I'm just asking you lovingly. Are you more focused on the moral side of things? Are you more focused on the spiritual side of things? Moral people will go to hell. Saved people go to heaven. I don't need more moral people. I need more saved people. Born again, in Christ, eyes opened. That's what matters. So jump back now to Mark chapter 8. This is an interesting healing. There's a couple different ways to look at it. Jesus takes them. They, I like the idea that they're begging him, touch him. They take him out of town. 23, spit on his eyes and put his hands on him. And he asked him if he saw anything. Next time your kid comes to you and says, Mom, Dad, I got something in my eye. Be like Jesus. Let me spit on you. He looked up and he said, I see men like trees walking. Now, there's a whole lot of different ways to take this. I have my own personal view, which I'll share here at the end, but I want to at least throw out some of the other ones here. I've heard people teach this to say that this shows sometimes, that a lot of times with Jesus, the healings are instantaneous. That this is a time to show not that his power is lacking, but to show you that sometimes things happen over time and maybe you're looking for the instantaneous healing and you realize that there's going to be steps in progression in how you feel and how you feel better. Any of you that's ever gone through any type of major surgery, you know that that first week after surgery, you think, I'm never going to be able to move this knee again. But you can because God's designed a body that heals. It's absolutely fascinating. You are literally cut open and your body heals. That's an amazing thing. I heard one teaching on this that said, you know what, this may be just practical. I have seen people in other parts of the world, we don't see it here in the United States as much because we have a very good medical establishment, other places of the world where their eyes are completely, for lack of a better word, caked over. You know, when Paul got saved, the Bible said that he had something like scales on his eyes that literally had to fall off. Some people said, maybe Jesus literally spit on him to get some type of moisture to get this eye open." Because then you look at 25, he put his hands on his eyes again. So maybe it's just the practicality of let's get the junk out so you can see clearly there. I think the key thing, though, is found in 25. He put his hands on his eyes again, and look, I think this is the key. This is my opinion. My opinion, be careful, 25. Made him look where? Up. Made him look up. I, I, I see Christ lovingly opening up his eyes, that's what I think he was doing there in 23, and then taking his hands on his eyes right there and putting his head up. There are so many verses on this idea of looking up. Jump through them with me, please. Colossians 3 is the first one to go to. Colossians 3. Take a look at Colossians 3, verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above. Where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Look up. I'm willing to bet the last thing that really brought fear, worry, anxiety, stress into your life was something that was happening on this earth. Your eyes were not on eternity. Your eyes were not on heaven. Your eyes were not on Christ. You were focused on something on this world. And so therefore, God is constantly reminding you, look above. If I came to you and said, be completely honest with me, what is really making you nervous tonight? It's probably some earthly thing. 
look above. You remember the story of Peter walking on water? If he kept his eyes on Jesus, he could walk on water. As soon as he's got his eyes off Christ, what did he do? He sank. Same thing happens with you and I. If I get my eyes on the situation, I will sink. If I keep my eyes on the Savior, I can do it. If you are constantly walking in fear, worry, anxiety, and the oh no, woe is me, I got to ask you, Colossians 3, 1 through 2, are you seeking those things that are above, and are you setting your mind on things above, not on things of the earth? If your mind is on things of the earth, it is not going to work. 2 Corinthians 4.18 says this, We do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. you got to look at things you don't even see. you got to look in faith at this. What did Paul write in uh, 1 Corinthians 13? We're looking through a glass, what? Dimly. We only get a small glimpse of stuff. Psalm 119, 18, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Open my eyes, Lord, that I may see wondrous things from, from your word. I've come to the conclusion when I talk to someone who claims to be a Christian and they don't see the Lord moving in any way whatsoever, it's because their eyes aren't opened. They're not looking up. If you open your eyes to what God is doing and you look up like Colossians 3 says, 2 Corinthians 4, if you look at the things that are not seen, if you understand that you're looking through things dimly and Psalm 119, you pray, Lord, open my eyes, you're going to see God move. There's no longer a coincidence. There's no longer a lucky. There's no longer any of that junk. God is moving and working in his sovereignty. But you have to choose. And if you choose not to, then you're like the blind guy back in Mark chapter 8 where you say, I see men like trees walking. You see a little, you get a glimpse, it's blurry, it's not focused. Man, but when you let Jesus take your face and make you look up, look at 25 again, back down to Mark chapter 8. He was restored and saw everything. I just got to ask you one last time here before we move on. What are you looking at? Are you looking up? Are you looking at things above? Are you looking at eternity? Are you praying for your eyes to be open to see wondrous things from his law? Or are you choosing to be blind? Blind in the heart, blind in the mind, blinded by the enemy. Let the Lord take you and make you look up and you will be restored and you'll see everything. If you have an unsafe friend and you're constantly talking to them about this or that, remember until their eyes are opened in Christ, nothing will change. Pray Acts 26, 18 for them, that their eyes can be opened. They move from the power of darkness to the power of light, from the power of Satan to the power of God. Pray that for them. And when their eyes are opened, then they'll get it. And once they get it, it's an absolutely beautiful thing, which now takes us to uh, verse 27 of Mark 8. What's it mean to get it? Look at verse 27. Now Jesus and his disciples went out of the towns of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah and others, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. We mentioned this last week a little bit in our introduction to this teaching. Verse 29, who do you say that I am, is probably the most important question you ever have to answer. Who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus to you? Do you realize how many people believe in God? But... They're not believing in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Guys, Muslims believe in God. Mormons believe in God. Jehovah's Witnesses believe in God. Lots of people believe in God. Who do you think Jesus is? That, that's what you got to answer. 
And it's not 27, who do men say that I am? See, Jesus, he never asks a question because he doesn't know the answer. He's asking a probing question in 27. He wants them to start thinking. Who do people say that I am? 28, John the Baptist, back from the dead. Elijah the prophet that was prophesied to come back. One of the prophets, if you remember in the book of Deuteronomy, there was the promise that the prophet would come. Okay, good answers. But what about you? I run into this a lot when I talk to people. I ask them, and I just actually had a conversation last week with somebody about this. I asked them, are you a Christian? Well, my grandpa was a pastor. That's great. <laughs> my grandpa was a farmer. doesn't mean anything. What about you? You know, my grandma always went to church. That's wonderful. I'm not talking to your grandma. What about you? Well, you know, my parents always were, were, really wanted us to go to church as kids. Okay, that's great about your parents. What about you? Who do you say that Jesus is? is. And, and I, and I got to stress this tonight because you need to know who he is to you. We mentioned this last week. Know what you believe and believe what you know. Have an understanding. And if somebody would come up to you and say, who is Jesus to you? What would your answer be? And I hope it's a passionate answer of knowing who he is in your life. Because here's the deal. Your answer to that dictates your eternal residence for the rest of your life. Now, people come up sometimes and say they don't like this idea that if I do sins on this earth for 50, 60, 70 years, why should that affect me for all of eternity? I think we have a tendency to forget that you are an eternal being. You are going to live on forever. You either have eternal life in heaven or have eternal death in hell. But you are going to exist forever. You are eternal. This tent that you have is not eternal, but you are who you are as a person. So the biggest question you could ever ask yourself right now is, who is Jesus Christ to me? And that's the only question that matters when you talk to anybody else. Who is Jesus Christ to them? I've been thinking about a lot this, a lot. Uh, Matthew 6, 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And if you look at the context of that teaching in Matthew chapter 6, the verses before it are, don't worry about food, don't worry about clothing, don't worry about any of these things because your God takes care of it. And it really hit me a while ago, how much of our prayer life is prayers that we really don't need to pray? We don't. My Father in heaven said, he'll take care of me. He'll give me food. He'll give me clothing. He'll give me shelter. He will meet my needs. He told me that. I don't have to get up in the morning and desperately pray for food and clothes. I don't have to. And if you look at Matthew 6, he's saying, move past that prayer and now just learn to seek him and his righteousness. See what happens. One of the things I, I've been trying to train my younger boys, when we ask them to pray at home, one of their first prayers was, Lord, give us a good day. As, isn't that what it is? When kids start praying, what do they always pray for? Lord, we pray for our puppies. We pray for our kitties. We pray for this type of stuff. You know, it's great to teach them from a young age to take all your cares to the Lord. Here's the problem. Some of us don't move past praying for puppies and kitties. Now, you may say, I don't pray for puppies and kitties. I know you don't. But you every day pray desperately for it to be a good day at work. You pray desperately for this or for that. How about you stop and say, Lord, you're good no matter whether it's a good day at work or not. God, you're just good. And God, if I get a bad diagnosis, you're so good. And, and God, if the whole thing falls apart and I lose my job, you're still good. 
And so therefore, Lord, I'm just going to seek you and your righteousness because that's really all that matters because you've already promised me you'll take care of my food, my clothing, and all that other type of stuff. And you've told me to be content no matter with what I have so I can really let those prayers go and just say, hey, Lord, thank you for providing for me. But Lord, if I got 10 minutes right now, I want 10 minutes to seek you deeper and to seek righteousness more, not repetitively praying every day. Lord, please make sure I have food in my fridge and pray that my car doesn't break down and pray this because even if my car breaks down, it's going to be okay. But Lord, I just want to seek you. And so I was thinking about this idea of seeking him and pursuing him. We're doing a small group study at our house and the word came up on Monday of pursuing. That, that idea of it literally means running. And I know for some of you, the concept of running, you hear that and that just disgusts you. Dawn bought a shirt, oh, last month. I, I think she actually may be wearing it tonight. You can check if you see her, where it says, running late is my cardio. She hates running, hates it. And so it's funny, if she's outside and, and if she ever has to run in because it's too cold or it's raining or she sees something that scares her, the boys and I just stop and our jaws drop. It's like, that's like seeing an albino bear. You never see Dawn running. It just never happens. So the idea of pursuing in the Bible carries this idea of running, pressing on, reaching the goal, seeking earnestly. I want you guys to realize, if you say in 29, who do you say that I am? If you say that he is the Christ, which means Messiah, which means anointed one, which means all the Old Testament prophecies fulfilled, which means God in human form, which means Savior of the world, if you say that, by golly, your life better live that. Because why are you saying it if it means nothing? We just throw this term around all the time. This idea of I'm a Christian, which means I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, and that means I, I live for him. And I, we need to pursue this. So we, we were talking this devotions this morning, the boys and I. What are we supposed to pursue? So I just went through all the verses in the New Testament. What are we supposed to pursue? I'm just going through them quick. 1 Corinthians 14.1 Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. Boy, run towards love. And not this worldly love. Uh, boy, God just loves you. Yeah, God does love you. And he loves you so much that he wants to take care of your sins. So let me also tell you about how much God loves you even while you were a sinner since Christ still died for you. But desire spiritual gifts. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever in prayer just desperately cried out saying, Lord, gift me with I want to teach. I want the word of wisdom. I want the word of knowledge. I want more mercy. I want these gifts. I, 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 I may have shared from the pulpit. It may have been in a small group. I lose track sometimes. You know, you know Richard retired uh, a year ago, and we knew he was going to retire. We knew this two years ago, and we've been praying two years for the Lord to raise up somebody, and God in his sovereignty hasn't raised anybody up. And so I find myself now desperately praying for the gift of administration. I don't have it. And I need it. To keep things organized, that's not my thing. And I stopped and I realized, wow, Lord, the longer you wait to bring somebody, the more I learn to rely on you. So desire spiritual gifts, because, Lord, I need the gift of administration. I need the word of wisdom. I need the word of knowledge. 1 Thessalonians 5.15 Pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. Why would I want to pursue anything that's going to hurt you or harm you? Especially in marriage, why would I want to pursue anything that's going to hurt my wife or the wife would hurt the husband? Pursue what's good. First Timothy 6.11, 
Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Boy, would that not change your walk with the Lord? Lord, if I would pursue righteousness, godliness, being like God, faith, love, patience, gentleness. And make sure it's repeated, 2 Timothy 2.22. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart, desiring, pursuing godly fellowship. Hebrews 12.14. Pursue peace with all people in holiness. Oh, Lord, I want to be more like you. Holiness. Holiness means separated, set apart. It doesn't mean you walk sinlessly. It means you separate yourself from the world. My point is this. When you answer 29, who do you say that I am? And I'm going to assume most all of you are going to say that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. I think everyone here tonight would probably say that. If that's what we believe, but then let's pursue that. Let's seek first the kingdom of God and all we say and do. I have noticed in my life, when I do not seek the kingdom of God first, I walk in this borderline joylessness, half bad mood, half good mood, just getting through the day junk. But when I seek the Lord, no matter what happens, there's joy, because that's one of the fruits of the Spirit. It's been said by many, many people, many, many times, I know C.S. Lewis really hit it, and you guys have heard this, this uh, theological argument before. It's called the liar, lunatic Lord. You have to look at the, the evidence for Jesus, and you have to decide if Jesus meant everything he said about himself, then he's Lord, he's God. If Jesus did not mean it, and he was just lying to get a following, then he's a liar, ignore him. If Jesus really believed this, but he's just a man, then he's a lunatic, forget him. But if you read the Bible and say, I believe this is true, the only logical conclusion is that he's Lord. That's the only logical conclusion. And everybody at one time or another is going to have to make this decision of 29, who do you say that I am? And according to Philippians chapter 2, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There are no atheists in hell. None. I, somebody just told me this recently, and they were not trying to make a mocking joke. Please don't think I'm joking about this. They said, do you realize that right now even Darwin is a creationist? Oh, that really hit me. There are no atheists in hell. Satan's not an atheist. Not in any way whatsoever. What there are is a lot of people that don't want to accept what the Bible says because they don't want to live the life and they don't want to succumb to it, so they fight it. But I'm telling you guys, who do you say that I am? That's a question we have to ask. That's a question we have to answer. And I hope our answer is 29. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the anointed one that fulfilled all prophecy. You are God in human form. You are the only one that can take away my sins. You are the only one that opens the doors to heaven to me. And so since those things are true, I now willfully give my life over to you. In Matthew 6.33, I will now seek you and your righteousness. And I will realize that's all that matters in this world. And I will now pursue you like I'm supposed to. That's the only logical conclusion to understanding who Jesus Christ is. I'm telling you guys right now, we have enough nominal Christians in this world. We have enough lukewarm people in this world. What we need are more people that radically really believe verse 29 and say, I believe who you are, Lord, and I want to go out and live it. That is all that matters. So, we didn't get a chance to get to uh, 31 through 33. We'll have to catch that next week. That's a really good one. 
Um, really looking forward to that. But it's almost 8 o'clock here. Any questions about anything that we went over tonight um, that we need to clarify here before we move on? We good? All right. Hey, guys, let's stand. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, who do you say that I am? Help us to seek first the kingdom of God. Help us to put you first. Help us to pursue, to pursue everything we just read there, Lord, to pursue holiness, to pursue love, to pursue gentleness, to pursue faith, to pursue peace, to pursue you. Lord, help us to realize that's the only place that we will find true joy and fulfillment. And Lord, help us to have a heart for the lost that are blinded, that we will battle that battle in prayer. Their minds are blinded, their hearts are blinded. Open their eyes. Turn them from the power of darkness to the power of light, from the power of Satan to the power of God. Help us, Lord, not to care about winning the debate, but proclaiming Jesus. You are good God, and we love you, Lord. Give us opportunities to represent you. In your name we pray this. Amen. Donna, is it open to the back? It will be. You may not go in until Donna goes in.